0: Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Galatians chapter 6. As we go to God's Word, let's go to the author once again and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Would you be pleased now as we gather in the name of Jesus, as we are before your word, would you be pleased to open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we would know what we are to believe about you and also what duty you ask of us. Father, be pleased to reveal yourself to us, your ways, and give us ears to hear your call upon our lives for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back on the 10th of September of last fall, we began the series, The Gospel According to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. We've arrived now at the end of the letter, and either uh, this week or next week will be the last sermon in the series. We spent almost, well, a year and a half uh, in Mark's gospel, uh, answering the question primarily, who is Jesus? Along with that, what did Jesus come to do, and how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? And here, in one of the letters, we've been asking this question: What is the gospel? Remember, Mark's gospel early on, Jesus said um, that the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. In the gospel and we saw Jesus' unfolding of the gospel there in mark and here is Paul ministering to a church through a letter on explaining and defending the gospel but why Galatians why did we choose Galatians well remember it was written to professing Christians and it focuses on the gospel and that reminds us that we Those who claim to know Christ still need to hear the gospel again and again. It's a lifetime message. It's the message the unbeliever needs to hear. The call to repent and believe, it is the message that the believer continues to need to hear. It's not just the ABCs getting you into Christianity. It is the A to Z, the beginning and the end of Christianity. It's not just the on-ramp To the highway, it is the freeway itself of the Christian life. As we've worked our way through Galatians, I hope you've been seeing that the gospel is the one central unifying message of the letter, indeed, of the whole Bible. And by God's grace, it is and will always be the one central unifying message here at Grace and Peace. Remember the early reformer Martin Luther. He discovered that Christianity was not primarily, not at all about what he had to do for God, but rather what God had done for him in Christ. And the letter to the Galatians was instrumental in bringing Martin Luther to faith and growing him in faith. He said this of this letter, This is my epistle. I have betrothed it to myself. It is my wife. Sounded like Luther loved the message of the gospel here in Galatians. Paul is writing this letter to a church he had helped establish in the Roman province of Galatia, um, modern-day Turkey. He has preached, he has planted churches, and now he's writing in response to a crisis involving false teaching. Remember that these false teachers were not saying that faith in Jesus Christ is not necessary. No, they were saying that faith in Christ was not enough. And Paul recognized that this, the not enough, was a threat to the gospel, both then and now, this false teaching presents a clear and present danger to the gospel. Remember, these six chapters can be broken up into three parts. The first two chapters, Paul is defending his personal gospel ministry. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he's defending the theological aspects of the gospel message And then here in the last two chapters, he's applying this gospel message to his readers' lives. Throughout Galatians, he keeps circling back to his primary purpose of establishing the truth of the gospel and defending the truth of the gospel, primarily justification by faith. Turn back with me to Galatians 2, verse 16. Here's what we read. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times in that one verse is justification by faith over and against justification by works. Luther in his commentary says this, this, that being justification by faith, is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. And so in this series, we have been attempting... In ways large and small, uh, loud and quiet, to beat this into our heads. I want to begin our time in the text today with a question. Think back with me over this past week, from last Sunday when you left here to now. Did you boast about anything? Did you speak of or assert anything with excessive pride? If you didn't boast outwardly so that your wife or your child or your friend or your neighbor or your coworker could say, Hey, you're boasting. If you didn't boast outwardly, did you boast inwardly? You know, where no one but you saw it. If you did, and I would assume all of us did in one way or another, uh, what did you boast about? What did you take excessive pride in? Now, is it always wrong to boast? Is it never right to boast? Let's find out. And let's do that by looking at the last few verses of Galatians. I'll begin reading But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, Peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Here's the outline for these final verses. A postscript. The false religion the true religion, and finally, the benediction. First, let's look at verse 11, the postscript to Paul's letter. He says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul is finishing this letter in his own handwriting. He takes the pen, as it were, from a secretary, and in that day, most often, most of these letters had um, a person, a a scribe, a secretary, um, transcribe what the author speaks. But Paul, as it were, takes the pen in his own hand, and he's adding these last verses as his personal P.S. Now, there's been some speculation. Does Paul have bad eyesight? Is it so that children can read this? Um, You know, when he says... um, What large letters I am writing to you, I mean, think all caps, think underlined, think bold, think highlighted. Um, Children, you know when you're writing a paper or you're reading a paper, if you want to emphasize something, you know, you you, you set it off and you you might change the, the printing so that it grabs people's attention. Well, that's what's happening here. Paul is wanting to grab attention at the end. This last section is a summary of the entire letter, as I hope we will see. And here he emphasizes the principal theme of the Christian gospel. And we're going to see where he's asking two questions. In his summary, Paul is going to ask and answer two questions about the essence or what is at the core or heart of the Christian religion. And it's this. Is it outward? Or inward? Is it human or is it divine? Is Christianity, in other words, a matter of external ceremony or inward spiritual reality? Is it what we do for God or what God has done for us in Christ? And in order to answer those questions, Paul sets up a contrast once again. And the contrast is between himself. And the Judaizers, the false teachers. And it's between the two systems or two religions that they represent between the true gospel or the false gospel, between the true religion or the false tradition, uh, religion, and gospel. First, let's take a look at verses 12 through 13 the false religion, the gospel of the Judaizers. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Well, who are the Judaizers? They are Jewish Christian ministries ministers who are following up on Paul's work of evangelism in Galatia and elsewhere. This is the reason that Paul is writing this letter to counter the false teachers. And these false teachers, as Paul says it very clearly here, and he said it all the way through his letter, they've taught that circumcision was a prerequisite for salvation. Now some of you know what prerequisites are but kids what happens is sometimes before you get to take one class at school you've got to have already taken an earlier class another class it's required and so the false teachers are making circumcision as an outward requirement a prerequisite for salvation they taught that a gentile galatian ...who is placing faith in Christ... ...has to become, as it were, a Jew first. And in doing so, they're denying that salvation is by faith only. It is Christ plus some external sign. Christ plus circumcision. It's the gospel plus. Again, the false teachers are not saying that faith in Christ is not necessary. They would be the first to tell you... ...absolutely, faith in Christ is necessary for salvation... But then they would go on to say, but it's not enough. There's something else you must do. Why? Why would they want to deny that salvation is by faith alone and not by works? Why would they insist on meritorious works? I mean, after all, Paul says they can't keep the law in the first place. What was their motive? Paul says it at the end of verse 12. It's to avoid persecution. To avoid persecution on account of the cross. And so it was fear. It was fear. They were afraid. I was recently at a conference and one of the speakers in a panel reminded all of us how many times God's word says, do not fear, do not be afraid, do not fear, do not be afraid. Why? Because it's a natural understandable human tendency to be afraid and Paul is saying they are doing this out of fear fear of persecution now why does the cross of Christ anger the world why does it stir up persecution Paul has been saying this throughout Galatians and he says it elsewhere it's That people resist the humiliation of seeing themselves as God sees them. As they really are and that's what the cross does. People are always attempting to either remove the cross or to construct some religion, some system without a cross. We heard it earlier that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, those who are circumcised. It is folly or foolishness to the Greeks or Gentiles, those uncircumcised. John Stott says this in his commentary, Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. Even though... Paul would say they are afraid, they seem successful, right? They've got converts, they've got people following them. They've got trophies and they are boasting, they are showing off, they are proud of external outward conformity. But Paul again is setting up this contrast between himself and the false teachers, between the true gospel and this false gospel. And here you see outward show and human works. Because Paul throughout Galatians is using circumcision to represent justification by works and not by faith. The false teachers are offering a religion that mainly focuses on externals and behavior rather than an internal change of heart, motives, and character. It's It's natural to us as fallen people to decline from the real, the inward, and the spiritual, and to somehow fabricate a substitute false religion, which is easy and comfortable because the demands are external and ceremonial only. There's an interesting article I read years ago uh, called Pharisees with Low Standards. And you're like, Pharisees with low standards? Are you kidding? Those were the guys that raised the standards. Well, Not really. They're the ones that lowered the standard so that they can meet the standard. Because have we not heard thus far in the readings, how are we to love the Lord? With all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves? That bar is pretty high. But if we lower the bar, we can meet the requirement, can't we? So Paul has just in those two verses reminded his reader of the false religion, the gospel according to the Judaizers, which we should know is anything but good news. Before we move on, I would encourage you to read, if you haven't already, that last article that's opposite the announcements in the bulletin. It's an article that's in our visitor's welcome and information folder. It's posted on our website. It's called Repenting Always. And toward the end of that article, the late James Montgomery Voice speaks that people can copy our outward behavior. Yes, who can't do that? But they can't copy a changed heart. They can't can't copy what they truly need. They have to have the work of God in their life. And that's what Paul is drawing attention to. Well, let's move on to the true religion, the gospel of the apostle Paul. And I'll pick up reading in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul indeed sets up a contrast but far be it from me the King James we should always go sometimes to the King James just to hear the language but God forbid but that important three-letter word now if the boast of the Judaizers was strange you know I'm boasting that I've got some folks to think that circumcision is an is an absolute requirement. If that is a strange boast, then the boast that Paul is about to announce is even stranger. This, in the original language, this boasting is more than bragging. It means to glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. One commentator says this, It's the object of our boast or glory that fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. Paul is obsessed, as it were. He is glorying in the cross. He is glorying in the crucified Christ. And his obsession seems strange. Because it is different from people who take pride in their accomplishments. He is taking pride not in his own accomplishments, but in the cross, this ugly, ultimate humiliation. This should have been embarrassing for Paul, but he knew the power of the cross, and he, he advertises it and broadcast it, and the church to this day It's the cross of Christ that we proclaim. Well, how do you, how did Paul boast in the cross? He's renouncing anything and everything that we can do to save ourselves. He has stopped trusting in his own merits and he started to trust in the merits of Christ alone. How do you and I boast in the cross? How do we boast? Well, we acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge God's strength. We acknowledge our inability. And we acknowledge God's ability. My friends, think back again to that original earlier question. What did you boast in this week? Accomplishment at work. Accomplishment at school. Your favorite team won. Your Other, unfavorite, lost. What did you boast about? What did you brag about? What did you take pride in? Because listen to this. The object of your boast reveals the object of your trust. The object of your boast reveals the heart of your religion. As Paul is boasting in the cross, there are two consequences that emerge. First, Paul says, the world has been crucified to Paul and hence to us, to Christians. It is, the world is dead to us. Paul has and we have been crucified to the world. We are dead to the world. We're not trying to get life from the world and the world by no means is trying to get life from us. The world, the godless values and the hopeless pleasures of this present age. It's the unredeemed humanity that is dominated by sin. And elsewhere in Galatians, when Paul is talking about the, world, the, the flesh, he's talking about the world. Paul is saying, nothing in the world now holds power over me. For the gospel destroys that power. Nothing in the world controls me. Because, get this, there is nothing in the world that I must have. Paul is saying, I am now free from the world. I no longer need to fear the world, nor do I need to worship the world. I am free. My friends, does the world have a hold on you? Do you have a hold on the world? What is your relationship to the world? Look at Paul's bottom line. Look how he cuts to the chase. Look how he gets to the point. You want to know what counts? Paul says this is what counts. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In other words, what counts, what matters, is not whether one is a circumcised Jew or an uncircumcised Gentile. Rather, what counts is whether or not one is a new creation. What counts, as the Gospel of John would make clear, is regeneration. There's an inward transformation. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul speaks of the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And here he says the only thing that counts is a new creation. Look at the parallel. Look at the relationship. You want to know how to exercise faith through love? It's because it's coming out of a new creation. You are renewed. True religion, true Christianity is inward and divine, but of course makes itself known outwardly and in the sphere of humanity. Remember our Old Testament reading. God's people were called to circumcise their hearts, to cut off the stubbornness, obey the Lord, love the Lord. But then as we kept reading in Deuteronomy in chapter 30, God provides what He demands. The Lord will circumcise your heart. It's not an outward circumcision for show, it's the inward reality of a new heart. So Paul has made the contrast between the false and true religions, between the false and true gospels. He's made a contrast between circumcision and Christ, or circumcision and the cross. And once this cr- uh, contrast has been made For a final time, he pronounces a benediction. Look with me, beginning in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit, brothers. So who is Paul writing this letter to? Who is to get this blessing, this benediction? Those who walk by this rule. And those who are of the Israel of God. Well, what is this rule? Aha. Paul is going to introduce a rule. I knew it was too good to be true. Here's a rule. Well, what is the rule that's been running through Galatians? It's this new creation. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone through the cross. Remember in chapter 2 verse 14 Peter excuse me Paul got in Peter's face why because he was not in line with the truth of the gospel the gospel was the rule the ruler by which things were measured and Peter was out of line and who is the Israel of God It's the people of God. Those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Those who look forward to Christ and the cross. And those who look back to Christ and the cross. Because the church is the continuation of Old Testament Israel as Paul makes clear in Romans. Because there's one plan of salvation. There's one people of God. So who gets this blessing? Who gets it? The Israel of God, God's people, those who are trusted in Christ. And who gives this benediction? Who is it? It's Paul, a marked man because he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. In the original language, this word, the marks, is, is used uh, in other secular Greek for the branding of a slave. Indeed, Paul is now free and he's been championing Christian freedom, but he's a slave of Christ. Paul did not avoid the persecution of the cross. He shows that the cost of discipleship, as it were, is on his back. Paul had said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I live I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. My friends, if we are identified with Christ, just as He bore marks on His body leading to His death, so also we, metaphorically speaking, are going to have marks on our body for standing up for the truth of the Gospel. And notice... The humanity of Paul in verse 17. From now on let no one cause me trouble. Paul wants to be left alone. Stop bothering me. What is this blessing? Paul ends his letter where he began. Turn back with me to chapter 1 verse 3. Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Wonderful words to begin a letter. Wonderful words to name a church. As we are reminded of this blessing. He ends on the same note where he started with grace and mercy and peace. Peace, the reconciliation between God and man. The emphasis on the Hebrew shalom. And then grace, getting what you do not deserve. An emphasis on the Greek It's a play on Old Testament and New Testament and between the two, mercy, not getting what you deserve. At the risk of understating the case, the gospel as good news brings with it, cannot but bring with it a great blessing of grace and mercy and peace. So we've seen Paul's postscript, verse 11, and we've seen the contrast between the outward and the human religion of the Judaizers and the inward and divine religion of Paul and his benediction. And so we're left to ask ourselves at the end of this letter two questions about Christianity. Is Christianity outward or inward? Is it human or divine? Well, the essence of the gospel is inward. It begins on the inside, but it works itself out. Remember Jesus versus the Pharisees. The contrast on the problem being on the outside or the inside. New creation. The new work begins and it indeed flows out The essence of the gospel is divine. Again, many have discovered through Galatians, as I hope that all of us are rediscovering, that Christianity is not primarily what we have to do for God, but rather what God has done for us in Christ. This, my friends, is what distinguishes Christianity from all other forms of religion in the world, all religions in northern Kentucky. My friends, everybody's got faith out there. Even those who are doubters, skeptics, agnostics, atheists, new age, whatever. People who are just lazy and have never even considered the claims of Christ, they've got a religion. They're placing their faith and trust in something or someone. It's to be human, isn't it? To worship, to trust. To believe. The church's greatest danger Paul is reminding us. Is not the anti-gospel outside the church. But rather the counterfeit gospel in the church. It's the gospel plus, And that's why I'm thankful for Ligonier Ministries. Table Talk Magazine. False teachers. It's got to be the ugliest cover in the history of Table Talk Magazine. And false teaching should scare us and drive us back to the true think with me for a moment again about this past week what did you boast about outwardly that people could see or inwardly that only you and the one who knows all sees all saw as well what Did you boast about? Well, think with me about this coming week. The great thing about the Lord's Day is it's the beginning of a new week. The old has gone and the new has come. I've had a really hard past week. I don't know about you. I'm really thankful for the Lord's Day. I'm really thankful to be with all of you together looking to Christ, our only hope. So think with me about this coming week. Do you plan to boast about anything? Do you think you'll have a reason to boast? I hope our passage gives us reason to boast. John Stott in his commentary says this, and this will be the last quote from his commentary. He says this, The truth is we cannot boast in ourselves and in the cross simultaneously. If we boast in ourselves and in our ability to save ourselves, we shall never boast in the cross and in the ability of Christ crucified to save us. Hear this. We have to choose. Only if we have humbled ourselves as hell-deserving sinners shall we give up boasting of ourselves, fly to the cross for salvation, And spend the rest of our days glorying in the cross. My friends, we're going to boast this week. There is no question about it. But every other world religion boasts. It's the mirror. You're looking at yourself. Only Christianity is the window through which you look at someone else. Who did for you what you could never do for yourself. And so may grace and peace always be filled with boastful people. People who boast not in themselves, who they are, where they're from, what they've done, what they're doing. But rather they boast in the cross. And when we boast in the cross, we will be persecuted. Probably we won't be persecuted with physical harm, at least not here and now but rather with what for some of us is much worse, being thought of by others as strange. And we would be shunned and ostracized and, get this, not liked. To be sure, we ourselves should not be the offense. We should not be offensive. But the gospel of our, the object of our boast, the cross, is offensive. The cross, the gospel, has always been Either a stumbling block to the religious or it is foolishness to the irreligious. People find it insulting to be told that they are too weak and too sinful to contribute anything to their salvation. Thus the preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Christ has, is, and will always be unpopular. No one challenges a gospel that goes like this. Here's what you need to do. They're like, Really? I can do it. Let's do it. No one challenges the gospel like that. But because we will be persecuted and because the message is unpopular, we need one another. We need the fellowship of the church. We need to have the gospel represented to us week after week so that we will become more and more grounded in the reality of our sin. The reality of God's grace and the reality of the transforming power of the gospel. The transforming power of the cross. We sang it earlier, but I want us to all listen one more time to the words of our hymn of Thanksgiving. They're worth repeating and they're worth taking on board and owning. Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. Thy pains, not mine, O Christ, upon the shameful tree, have paid the law's full price, have purchased peace for me. Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven or earth could bear but God. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails, save that which is of thee. May this church be full of boastful people, thankful, humble people who are increasingly astonished by the gospel of God's grace and peace in Jesus Christ and His cross. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you that the cross, the instrument of shame, cruelty, cursing, and death for Jesus, has become for us an instrument of blessing and life. Father, may we boast only in the cross and in doing so acknowledge the reality that while we have been and still are in many ways miserable sinners, Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. Truly it is your grace that has brought us to you and gathered us to one another. May we always be found boasting only in the cross of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.